Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. So great to be together and to worship together in the house of God, to experience his presence. And, and we're believing this morning that um, God is going to bring greater revelation of who he is as we unpack his word together. My name's Andy, and I'm the executive pastor here at the church. And before we dive in to the message today, I just have a quick announcement I would love to share with all of you, and that is uh, coming up here in three weeks, we are entering into a new season that we affectionately refer to here as Summer at Antioch. All right, and so uh, the temperature's uh, starting to rise up a little bit, but we want to provide some uh, refreshments and some treats for you and your kiddos. Uh, after, after the service, we are going to be condensing our two services down to one starting on that day on the 22nd. So we'll have a 10 a.m. Uh, service, and that will run for eight weeks through July 10th. And so we'd love for you to be a part of that service with us, and we'd love for you to stick around afterwards to, to, to connect, to hang out, and to enjoy, uh, to enjoy one another. In addition to that, we are also looking for some help uh, with, our, uh, with kids' volunteers. Uh, a core of our kids' volunteers are actually traveling this summer, going away on, on different mission trips all across the world. And because of that, and because we now have one service, we're actually looking to expand our volunteer base so that the same people don't have to volunteer at Kins Ministry week in and week out. And so if you're interested in helping us with that need, we'd love for you to get involved. You can stop by our table in the lobby. You can say hello to our outgoing interim kids pastor, Marin Van Beber, and say hello to Andrew and Shelby Baldock, who today is their first day on the job, actually. And we're so excited for that. And so thank you so much for, for praying about that and, and considering um, helping us out in that, in, that, um, in that space. Also at this time, uh, we want to release our middle schoolers to go to Youth Life Group. So you are released to go. Thank you so much for your patience with us. One of these days we'll remember to say it in the right spot. Well, we, uh, Adam did an amazing job last week kicking off this new series that we're in called Life in His Name. And the reason we're calling it Life in His Name is because it's a study through the book of John. And John himself has declared that that was the purpose and the motivation behind writing this gospel, writing this book. And uh, we see it in John chapter 20, verse 30. He says this, but these... He's referring to the signs and the miracles and the stories that were recorded in his gospel. These are written that, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's desire, John's motivation is to, was to reveal the glory of Jesus through his writing and that those, his audience, his listeners, his hearers, as they see Jesus for who he is, they might believe in Jesus and, and, and knowing that the next thing that comes after believing in Jesus is experiencing, is experiencing life and life to the full. Jesus himself said that's what he came to do in John 10. He says, I have come to give you life and life to the full. And so our hope and our prayer is as we unpack this, uh, the passage, passage today as we go through this book together, that the glory of Jesus would be revealed, our eyes would be open, we'd see him in a new way, in a fresh way, and then as we see him, our faith would be strengthened, and that through believing in him all the more, we'd experience even more life that he wants to bring to us. And now we're believing for that here this morning, that there's a message that God wants to communicate that would stir us and invite us to, uh, to make space, make room, God, have your way in us. We want the life that you want to offer, that you have for all of us. Many of you know this, um, our family uh, moved 
here recently, just a few weeks ago, we were just a, we were a few minutes up the road on Dobson. Now we're just a few minutes down the road uh, south of here on Dobson. And, you know, when you move, you experience um, a, a myriad of, of challenges and stresses. Anybody who's ever moved before, you know uh, some of the difficulties that come along with it. They're the difficulties of, of just the actual physical labor of packing up boxes. And well, before we pack the boxes, you got to acquire the boxes. Where are you going to get boxes from? It's actually kind of hard to do. So you got to get the boxes. You got to pack them up. Who's going to do the work? Um, we have to decide, um, uh, you know, what are we going to do with the kids when we're trying to pack? You know, because a lot of times you're putting stuff away and then the kids are, are going to grab it and pull it out. It's like, no, I, I don't want you to know that, that we still have this toy. I want you to forget that this toy exists, that, you know, that, that's going bye-bye. You know, there, there's the, um, the, the coordinating of, you know, when's the moving truck going to come? And is it going to work with the timing? We, were, we, we bought a new home and we were doing some renovations and the whole other set of difficulties and challenges and stresses that come with, with renovating a home. Well, one of the challenges that I know that many of you can identify with when you move is the time, when the time comes to enter into this space, either if it's a closet or a basement or a garage where you have to go look at all the things that you forgot that you have. Right, all the things that you had kind of put away and wanted to forget about, and then you have to go look at them and then decide what you're going to do with them. Right, what are we going to do? Are we going to keep this thing? Uh, is, am I attached to it? Am I attached to it enough? I've kind of forgotten that it's existed. I've learned to live without it. Do I really need it? Do I want to sell it? Do I want to throw it away? Do I want to give it away? What are we going to do? Uh, when we were, uh, uh, you know, packing up and, and going through some things, I found a box of journals. And these journals have kind of chronicled my, my own personal journey with the Lord and the different prayers that I had prayed over the last 15 or 16 years, the different things that I sense God's spoken. And and some, th- and some level, it's kind of sweet and, you know, like, wow, God, you've been so faithful. But on another level, it's kind of embarrassing. Like, I don't know if I ever want anybody to read what's in these journals as I'm pouring my heart out uh, before the Lord. You know, do I really want to keep these things? Um, you know, we found some of the kids' artwork, you know, little, when they were little, the, the, the little artwork they did with their, you know, with their handprints or their footprints or their little heinies. They put like on a, you know... <laughs> Y'all never did that? Maybe it's just my wife did that. She like put a little paint on their bottom and had them sit down. It's like, that's their bottom. Um, Sorry, Emily, if you're watching, if I just exposed you. Um, But it's, you know, it's cute. But do you want to have it? Just take a picture and chuck it, right? Like, um, you know, and... And not only that, you're deciding what you're going to do with the old stuff, but also when you're moving into a new space, there's a lot of times you want to get new stuff. There's new furniture, new decor, new items that you need because the old stuff actually doesn't quite fit anymore. And so so you have to make a decision. It's like, do I really want to keep this? But also, I also want to add new stuff. And I I actually can't keep both. I can't keep the old stuff and the new stuff because then I'll just have too much stuff, right? I already have too much stuff and I add more stuff to it. There's so much stuff. I got to get rid of some stuff. Right? And so you make a decision, actually, we want to get rid of the old and rid of some old things to make space and create room for some new things. Here today, what we're going to do is we're going to unpack a story from Scripture where we see Jesus transforming and actually removing some old things and creating space to declare and to usher forth some new things. And he has new life that he wants to bring for us this morning. So as we're in this passage... Uh, invite the Lord to open your heart. Invite the Lord to open your eyes and, and at, be asking him, would it, God, you are one who, who does away with the old and makes way for the new. What's the new thing you want to do in me today? Okay, and if you have your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 2. 
And that's where we're going to be today. There are two stories we're looking at. So we're going to look at the first story, look at the second story, connect them together, and then ask the question, so what? What does it mean for us? John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And this is what it says. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' Jesus's mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invi- invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Verse 6, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have already had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. At first glance, it could be easy for us to think of this story just as a kind of a, a fun, interesting story. Jesus turning water into wine. And, and uh, yeah, that's, that's kind of a cool thing. Jesus is powerful. He does some miraculous things. But then maybe if we just take a minute and think about it a little further, we might, we might think, well, why did Jesus turn water into wine? You know, the, 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 there is a party going on. The people have already had too much to drink. Do they really need more wine? You know, why would, why would he do this? And, and, and then, then you kind of think about, well, the, think about the other miracles that Jesus performs and does, the, all the signs and wonders that he, he performs. You know, most of the time, those are connected to a, a specific need where there's actually a, a place of desperation in someone's life and he's wanting to draw near to them and put his finger on their life and to help them and to, to save them and to restore them. People who are blind, he wants to give them sight. People who can't hear, he wants to help them hear. He, he raises the dead. You know, that, those are the types of miracles we kind of expect from Jesus. Those are the ones that seem the most directly re- related to it, a desperate need that somebody feels. Why water into wine? That doesn't really seem to, to match up with the, the, the way that, that Jesus uh, moves in, in, other, in, in other stories. But if we take a moment and we think about what's actually happening here, what Jesus is, is doing, he actually is addressing a deep need that we all have. He is dress, addressing and providing, giving provision towards a significant need that we are all desperate for. And he does it through this, he, 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 just, he declares it and demonstrates it through this miracle of turning water into wine. Well, the other thing we need to know about miracles is that first and foremost, they're not primarily about the, uh, they're not primarily about us or about the person who's receiving it. He cares about people. He, he loves people. He wants to help people in need, but that's not his primary motivation. His actually primary motivation is to, to substantiate his message. It's to actually to lend legitimacy and credibility to the authority he, he has to speak in a, in a particular way. 
And actually, we we're going to see here in a moment that that's what people were looking for too. When you speak with authority, you better do something to show that you have authority to talk like that. And so the purpose of miracles was to say Jesus was a messenger and he had a message that he was the son of God, the Messiah. And he wanted to demonstrate and, and verify that that was true. And he did that through different miracles. We actually see a great example of this in Matthew chapter 9, where a paralytic man is lowered uh, down the roof, you know, through the roof of a home into uh, a place where Jesus is teaching. And his friends are, are hoping for Jesus to heal him and restore him. And the first thing that he says to this man when he looks to him is not, you are healed. The first thing he says, your sins are forgiven. Because that's the message he was wanting to declare. That's the message. He, he was a messenger and that's the message he wanted to give. And then hearing this, the religious leaders around him and said, how dare this man do such a thing? How could he do that? Only God can forgive sin. Only God can do, can do that. And he says, to show that the, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin, take up your mat and, and walk. The miracle substantiated the message. There was an illumination with his words, but then the illustration with his power. And so here in this story, we need to remember that all miracles are for that purpose. And so we then ask ourselves the question, what is the message he was wanting to verify? What's the message he's actually speaking through in this story and, and that, the, the, that the, the miracle lends credibility to, it actually legitimizes and makes sense of. It shows that there actually is authority in that message. And I think we can under, we can, uh, there's a, at least two things that we can look at to really understand what's the message he's trying to get across. What is that which the miracle is verifying? And the first has to do with the interaction between Jesus and his mother. It's a really interesting interaction. They're at the party and they run out of wine. And Jesus' mother comes to Jesus and, and says, they're out of wine. And meaning, so meaning to say, like, Jesus, do something about it. Like, you know, that's what's insinuated. Can you fix this? There's a problem here. Can you fix it? And of course, connected to that is the belief that she knew he could do something about it, right? She was conceived of the, uh, of, he was conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. She knew that her son was altogether different, that there was something special about his life, that there was power on his life. She comes to him, Jesus, they're out, they're out of wine. Can you do something about it? And Jesus' response is so interesting. He says, he says, woman. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't call her mother. He calls her woman. Now, context is a little bit different. In our day, I ain't calling my mom a woman. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I'm going to do that. Boy, what'd you call me? Uh, nothing, mama. That's what I thought. No, but this, in this context, it was a, a little bit different. It, woman was not a disrespectful word, but it was definitely a more abrupt and curt way to respond to her. Woman, why are, you, why are you bothering me with this? What does this have to do with me? And it, that's a very abrupt way to respond to her request. And then he says, what he says next actually reveals to us why. My time has not yet come. The, my, my hour has not yet come. And, and we need to lock in on that phrase because that phrase it, Jesus uses several times throughout his ministry, several times in, in, uh, throughout his journey on the earth. And every time he used it, he was doing, he was saying it to, um, to so to say, you know, um, you know, 
people don't fully see who I am yet, and that's okay because my time has not yet come. Or um, I, I'm, I'm, I should, like, you want me to do this, but I, I'm actually not going to do it because my time has not yet come. And what he, every time he's doing it, he's actually referring not to his own timing, but to someone else's timing. He's saying it to say, I'm actually submitted and I have an allegiance to someone else's will, not my own. Someone else's purpose is not my own. I'm not gonna do something because I want to or because anybody else wants me to. I'm gonna do something only because the one that I submit to wants me to. And of course, what he's referring to here in this story is his father in heaven. And we actually have the dichotomy of Jesus is speaking with his earthly mother. And yet he's telling her, I'm not gonna do what you ask me to because my time has not yet come. My time belongs to somebody else. My time belongs actually to my Father in heaven. And the, the purpose of John telling us this part of the story, he, he didn't have to include this aspect of the story, but he wanted to. He purposely selected to. The, the reason he included it is because he wants to show us, and Jesus is wanting us to know that, that first and foremost, the message that his miracle verifies is that he's not the son of his mother Mary or the son of his father Joseph, but he's the son of God. He's the son of God. And that's what, that's what we're seeing here. So the, the, the miracle verifies, he's is meaning to verify, verify the fact that he is the, the son of God. The, the, um, the second thing that, the second message he's communicating is that through the miracle is that Jesus offers a wine. The wine of Christ isn't just for, for enjoying and consuming it, but it's actually for cleansing and for purifying and he's, and he's actually wanting to draw attention to that's, what his, that's his purpose. That's the message he, uh, of why he came to the earth, to cleanse and to purify. And so Jesus, he moves forward with the miracle. It's interesting. His mom asks him to do it. He says, why are you bothering me? And then he goes ahead and he does the very thing that she asked him to do. But they wanted to be clear. He's doing it not because she asked him, but he's doing it because his father was releasing him to do it. Uh, John 5, 19, it says this, Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the, whatever the father does, the son also does. And, and so the father releases him to move forward and to do something about the, this situation. And how Jesus approaches it is very interesting. He sees six water jars over in the corner. And these big jars that hold 20 to 30 gallons. Imagine 20 to 30 gallons of milk. You know what that feels like. These are big jars. And he tells the servants to fill them with water. Now, these jars were not traditionally used to hold water that was, that was meant for drinking or for consuming. That's not what their intended purpose. Those, the, the water, the, those jars were meant to hold, hold water that was actually, in, the purpose of them was for, for cleansing and for purifying and part of Jewish tradition and custom was that the people of God were expected to, to purify themselves regularly through, through ceremony, to, to bathe themselves, to, cl to clean themselves in a way, because to, so to identify that they belong to a holy and pure and a clean God. And so that was their practice. And so it's so interesting that Jesus has them fill these jars with a substance that's, that's typically used for cleansing, and he transforms that substance into something else entirely. He transforms it into a substance that's actually going to have a similar effect that the previous substance had, but in a brand new way. And he's, and he's actually, this is what we see. He's taking something old 
and he's making it something new. Because to wine wasn't just, the, 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 the significance of wine isn't just that it's a drink that we have at a party to have fun. The significance of wine is actually that it, it symbolically represents life and symbolically represents blood that's poured out. And we know this, we see Jesus at the Last Supper and, and he, see him share a meal with his disciples that involves bread and wine. And it's, it's so significant that the Last Supper happens at Passover because Jesus is wanting to, to show that he is, the, he is the bridge that's connecting something, something that's old and bringing it a rev, fresh revelation into something that's new. And at Passover, what they're remembering is the way that the, the, the people of God it was, were commanded by God to sacrifice a lamb and to take that blood of the lamb and to spread it over the thresholds and the doorposts of their homes so that when the angel of death visited their homes, it would pass over them and they would, they would escape death. And on that very night, they were brought out of Egypt, out of slavery and into freedom. And so wine that signifies blood, signifies the, 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 it, the, the disciples are able to make the connection between the wine that they're sharing and the, the, and the blood of the lamb that was shed at Passover and the, the salvation from death and the deliverance into freedom. But not only that, Jesus says this wine is actually the blood of the new covenant. There's a new thing that I'm doing. There's a new way that the people of God will experience the presence of God. There's a new way that the people of God will have fellowship with the person of God. And that way is, is different than old because what was of old was going through different ceremony and ritual to make themselves pure and clean to be able to have access or to draw close to the presence of God, a pure and holy God. And what Jesus is saying is actually my blood, which is the wine of the new covenant, is going to completely change the way people experience my presence. Because my blood is going to be the very thing that washes away sin permanently. That water was used to temp temporarily, in the moment, take away sin. But my blood is now and permanently, forevermore, going to wash away sin so that the people of God can have permanent access to the presence of God. And so all of that is happening here in this moment when Jesus is turning water into wine. It's, it, he's, what he's saying is, I am the son of God. And he's also saying, I am coming to bring, I'm for, this is foreshadowing a new substance that I'm bringing to people for them to be pure and clean and to have renewed and restored relationship with our father in heaven. And what's the response? You know, what kind of wine is this? Well, the, the, it says the master of the banquet, who's kind of the chief usher, the, the servants bring him a drink and he goes, this is some good wine. Like, this is amazing wine. And he actually calls the bridegroom over because he's going to give the, the groom credit for the thing that Jesus did. And he says, typically, we, you know, you bring out the, the best wine first. You wanna, this is your lead piece. You want to lead with your best, right? You make a good impression. But after they've had plenty to drink, you can bring out the cheap stuff because they're not going to know the difference, right? But you have saved the best for last. And what he is saying is that, that the love of God is, I mean, I'm, excuse me, the, the wine that Jesus offers is supremely satisfying, right? It is, it is, it is superior to every other wine. That the, the love and the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus is, is superior to every other wine that the world would offer us. It says, I promise you, taste this. It will, you'll, it will feel good. It will, you'll like it. But nothing compares to his love. In fact, David 
the man before his time, right? In Psalm 63, said, your love, O Lord, is better than wine. We see that here, that, that, that this, uh, the, the master of ceremonies is actually experiencing this. Like there's actually something really sweet and amazing about this. But not only is it delightful, the love of God delightful uh, for all of us, but what we, we understand is that the, the, the wine that Jesus offers is superior to the temp- temporal, incomplete religious system that preceded it. Or the, the, or, or the water that was associated with the temporal, incomplete religious system that came before. I'm actually offering a new wine that has the power not, to, not just to make you clean on the outside, but actually to make you clean in here. And so putting it all together, what is the message and how is it verified? The message that's verified through Jesus turning to water into wine is that he's the son of God who comes to do away with an old substance to bring a new substance that has the power to forgive us and make us clean and have right relationship with God. That's what this story is actually all about. Before we move forward, I I think I just want to take a moment here just to say if you're in this room and you find yourself maybe struggling with sin or feeling shame or feeling dirty or feeling like you don't belong, I just want to say to you that the wine of Christ is available today. And as we receive it and partake of it, you don't have to feel shame, ashamed anymore. You don't have to feel dirty anymore. That receiving the wine of Christ cleanses us and purifies us from all sin and unrighteousness. And that's available to you today. Jesus wants to give you his wine to set you free from, from those th- things that have burdened you, to set you free from those feelings of shame. That's available here and now. Let's jump forward to the um, the second story we find here in John 2. So jumping down into to verse 12, it says this. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciple would remember that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to, to prove your authority to do these things, to do all this? And so there we see it again, a sign to legitimize or to substantiate the messenger. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're gonna raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was actually his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what had been said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. And so in the first story here in John 2, we see Jesus replacing an old substance with a new substance. He's getting rid of the old and actually ushering forth something new. And we see him doing something similar here in this story. Jesus is actually going, we're going to see him drive out something old and bring forth something new, which is himself. 
And so for us to really understand this, unpack this together, just let's just, just dive in historically and culturally the significance of what's occurring. Traditionally, according to Jewish culture and, and custom, that when worshipers came to the temple, to the house of God, to the place where worship uh, occurred, they were to bring with them an offering. And they were to bring either a, a, you know, um, animal, a goat, a, a, a lamb, um, a, or a sheep, uh, or a dove. It would also bring grain, to bring an offering to the Lord, and they would give it to the priest. And the priest would then um, sacrifice that offering or burn that offering on the altar and to facilitate worship, to facilitate the worshiper experiencing fellowship with God. Now, for people who lived close to Jerusalem, it was easy enough for them to bring their offering with them to the temple because they lived close enough. But for those who were traveling many, many, many miles, it was actually kind of cumbersome to have to bring that offering all that way. So there's a long distance to have to, to carry that, that stuff with them. And so the religious leaders, what they decided to do is like, what if we set up a shop right outside the temple so that the worshipers coming from afar can actually just purchase their offering here and that we, they wouldn't have to buy it I mean, I'm sorry, they wouldn't have to bring it with them. And, and so actually, it was in the, the, the idea of selling the offering was actually meant out of, out of kindness. It was actually a, a, an, it was a gesture of, of compassion and care for worshipers. But we see here what's happened is that the original intent has been completely corrupted and has been turned upside down. And what was intended to be selfless and caring about others has now become selfish and those who are doing it are caring only about themselves. That those who were, who were charged to, to, to help facilitate worship, genuine and true worship of God, were actually now only doing it to make a profit. They're only using it to make, to make money. And they didn't care about the worshiper and connecting with God. They cared about lining their own pockets with wealth. That was what they were in it for. And Jesus, in verse 25, it says he knows all people. He knows what's in their hearts. He could see what's happening. He calls them whitewashed tombs that they, are, they, they seem to have it together, that that's truly relig- spiritual on the outside. They, they put on a good show on the outside, but on the inside, they're dead. They're dead on the inside. Yeah, they're helping the worshipers have, you know, get the offering that they need so that they can worship on the outside, but on the inside, they're full of greed. And, they're, they're only, and, and, and self-interest, they only care about themselves. And seeing this and knowing this, Jesus says, how dare you? How dare you turn my father's house into a market? How, how dare you turn the house of God, the place where worship exists, into a marketplace, into a place where, I, where you can just make money? Because that's the only reason you're here. And so he puts together a, a whip of cords and he begins to drive them out. He drives them out of there. He flips over the table. He said, enough is enough. How dare you do that to my father's house? What, what is the message that... Jesus is communicating. It's that he is the son of God who ushers in and preserves true and proper worship. He is the son of God. This is my father's house who ushers in true and preserves true and proper worship. And in response to this, the Pharisees, the, the leaders there, is like, how, again, how dare you talk to us this way? What sign will you do to, to prove that you really have authority to do this? And what sign does Jesus refer to? He talks about the temple. He says, tear the temple down. In three days, I'll raise it up. They think he's talking about the physical. He's talking about the spiritual. And he's talking about the resurrection. 
what legitimizes and authorizes and, and verifies that Jesus has the authority as the Son of God to preserve and to bring forth true and proper worship, it's the resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, he proved to all of his, everyone who could hear him, to all of the, the followers, anyone who heard his message, he proved that he was exactly who he said he was. And he's talking about the resurrection, saying the resurrection is what will verify the message that I am the son of God. And I love it. He talks about himself as the temple because they knew, they knew exactly what, what he was referring to. The temple was the centerpiece of the religious system. It was the, the, it was the place where worship happened. In the Old Testament, as the people left Egypt, and as they moved towards Canaan, God gave them a temple, a portable one called the tabernacle. And it was literally referred to as the tent of meeting, the meeting place between God and man, where people would go to, to worship. Once they entered in the promised land, they constructed a permanent place, the temple, and, and, and fully constructed according to the specifications of God. And it was the place where people would go to worship, the meeting place between God and man. And what Jesus is saying here is actually I'm, I'm doing away with, with what used to be. And now I'm the temple. Now I'm the meeting place between God and man. If you want to meet God, then you come meet with me. If you want to get to God, then you come through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but through me. I am the temple. And not only am I the temple, but I'm also the high priest who facilitates and mediates worship in the proper way, not to gain money for myself, but actually at great cost to myself, I gave up my own life to mediate between the worshiper and God so that the, God, so that the people of God can be restored to a relationship with God in the place of God, which is Jesus in his presence. And so he, that's the message he's communicating and it's gonna be verified. It's gonna be legitimized. It's gonna, the credibility of it is gonna come through the resurrection. And so when we put these two stories together, we see that in the first, Jesus is taking something old and he's transforming it into something new. And it's foreshadowing his blood that will be shed, his blood that will be poured out on our behalf for our cleansing and for our forgiveness and for our purification. And in the second, he's driving out the old religious system one that is conducive to hypocrisy and superficial piety. And he's driving it out and he's making way for something new, for the son of God to now be forever the mediator between God and man and to be the place where true worship exists in his presence. And what will verify it is the resurrection. His blood poured out, his body broken and, and resurrected to usher in something new. And so as we finish our time together, we actually wanna take communion because we believe that that, that symbol is a, the symbol of, of taking communion together. The act of taking communion together is us receiving his blood that was given for our cleansing, is receiving his body that was given to renew us and restore us back into God's presence. And so there are um, communion elements in uh, the chair in the spots in front of you and underneath your chair if you're in the front. I encourage you to, um, to pull that out now.
And so as we take communion together, let's remember and celebrate the faithful, steadfast love of Jesus who poured out his blood, not just to, not just to forgive us, but to cleanse us, to purify us, to make us right before God. And let's remember that he has made a new way for us to experience worship, for us to be in, in the presence of God, and that he truly is the Son of God as demonstrated through the resurrection. It says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he, he took bread, and, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup together. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus, that your blood is what cleanses us and purifies us. It's not based on what we do. It's not based on our own fulfillment of obligation on our own duty or our performance, that we are cleansed by your blood. The shedding of your blood is what takes our sins, though they make us scarlet, and what makes us white as snow. And we thank you, Jesus, that you took a, a broken and faulty system, a, a way of worship that was focused only on externals, and you brought it into the heart. And no longer do we have to use a mediation in order to experience God's presence, but because, Jesus, you became the temple, we can experience you, we can draw near to you, and we can have fellowship in the presence of God. And thank you that you rose again to demonstrate that all these things are true. And now we know that there is life in your name. As our eyes are open to see your glory revealed through your word, as our eyes are open to reveal the glory of your, of your blood and your body that were given on our behalf, we recognize that there, and we receive that there is life in your name. There is life in you. There is life in you. And so, Lord, would you release life all throughout the room? Would the life of Jesus be released through the revelation of your glory today? We thank you. We thank you. We pray this in your name. Amen. I want to invite you to, to stand with me. And I'd love our ministry team to come forward and move into a time of response here. And, and really, what, from both of these stories, we see Jesus replacing an old thing with a new thing, and we're believing for the same thing for us here. 
that for many of us here in the room, there is a new thing that God is wanting to do. There's a new thing he's wanting to do in your heart. There's a new thing he's wanting to do in your life, in your family, at your job, in your marriage. There's a new thing he's wanting to bring forth. And it's interesting in the first story, Jesus takes the old thing and he transforms it. And so for some of you, the sense that we have is that you know, maybe there's a, a wound or a pain or a hurt from the past. And actually God wants to, he wants to put his hand on it and he wants to redeem it and transform it and to renew it in a way that brings life to you. In the second story, Jesus actually drives out the old thing. And so for others in this room, maybe there is a lie that you're believing or a a sin pattern or a struggle that you have and you can't quite seem to, to break free from it. And with his zeal and with his passion for you, he wants to come and drive that out today with his love. And he actually wants to remove it from you so that he can give you something else instead. And so if that's you, we invite you to come forward. We wanna pray for you. Our team's up here. They love you. They care about you. They, they wanna see you experience the life that's available in Jesus. Specifically, uh, we, our prayer team was, uh, this morning was sensing that if there are any marriages in the room that feel stuck, and that really just, we, it needs to be a new day for your marriage. It got, we, you need Jesus to do a new thing in your marriage. We wanna invite you to come forward and we wanna pray for you believing that the life of Jesus will be released so that you can turn a new page and experience fresh life once again. And of course, if there's any other need in the room, physical, spiritual, relational, financial, please come forward, take this time to, to meet with God. We don't just wanna be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Let's invite Jesus to do a new thing as we respond together.